Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Okay, so who plays Bob Mueller in the movie? Robert Duvall. I'm, th- I'm picking Sam Elliott. Oh, definitely Sam Elliott. Right? I'm not coming up with this on my own, but now that I've heard it, I can't like I can't get it out of my head. And it's James Cromwell. James you know Cromwell, the guy from, from Babe? Babe. What about the that'll do pig guy? No. Yeah. Oh wait, hold yeah, on. I'm I showing a picture. Totally oh, right. Oh. You wouldn't think of it, and then you look oh, at a picture. It's kind of good, actually. And you're like, yeah. no, yeah, the guy from Babe for sure. James Cromwell, call your agent. <laughs> what about? What about Bob Mueller playing himself? Never pull it off. Not convincing. <laughs> the old triple threats. He doesn't look like him. This episode of Rational Security is supported by Blinkist, giving you key ideas from best-selling nonfiction distilled by experts into bite-sized text and audio. Get a free seven-day trial at Blinkist.com rs. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Mueller Time edition. Mueller Time. Mueller Time. It's finally here, you guys. Can you feel it's it? It's all Mueller all the time. <laughs> it sure is. Although, it, to the extent that implies beer, I want to say I am drinking bourbon today. Yeah. Just so, just so we're clear, it could be like a Mueller bourbon. Yeah, Maybe but I just I just don't, I don't want any implication of beer involved in Mueller time. <laughs> Because you're so opposed to beer. <laughs> no, I like beer. I just I like beer. I like beer. I, I still like beer. But I'm do. You? But right now <laughs> oh, I need a, no. a tall glass of bourbon. <laughs> I feel like it's more of an absent kind beer of a situation. In all the world. All the world. Uh, I am Shane Harris. I'm here in the New Jungle Studio with Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes is joining us remotely from Tacoma, Washington. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Shane. This week on the Read podcast. Read anything good this week? <laughs> <laughs> Read anything good twice? <laughs> this week on the podcast. What else, you guys? The Mueller Report is finally here in its mostly unredacted glory. Uh, we're going to do uh, the whole show on this, obviously. Uh, and we're going to do three segments. First, we're going to talk about our biggest impressions or takeaways, having spent now almost a week reading it. I think everyone has probably read it at least once, spent some time thinking about it, read a lot of the coverage. Uh, ben is rereading it again. Uh, people are going back into it for seconds, thirds times, focusing on certain sections. We're going to kind of basically pull back and say, okay, what were the things that have stuck with us after a week of thinking about this? Uh, in the second segment, we're going to talk about a part of the report that we're not seeing, which is the counterintelligence portion of the investigation uh, and what that might look like and what that means going into the 2020 elections. And in the third segment, we're going to talk about what happens next now that this report has landed uh, and the ball seems to be largely in Congress's court. Uh, what can we expect to happen next? So, Before we get started, can mm-hmm. I tell a, Mueller, a funny Mueller report story that happened this morning? Yeah. So I was going to the gym carrying a section of the Mueller report. As one does. As, As one, does. one does. As a lot of people do this week. Yeah. So I was going to sit, go on one of those ellipticals and keep reading 
And I'm walking across the street, and this large red truck or van is stopped at the red light, and I cross in front of it, and the driver leans out and shouts at me, dude, is that the Mueller report? (laughs) And and I say, yep. He said, hey, most people are done with it already. And I said, most people aren't reading it as carefully as I am. Good for you. There we go. So off to the gym. This Washington story really happened today. That's a real thing. Um, All right, Susan, let's kick us off with this. So you you spent about now – six days or a week thinking about this. What is something that has really stuck with you and that you find it could be like a big aha or something that has you know, your mind keeps churning on after spending time with this report? So it's it's taken a while and I'm I'm on my second sort of comprehensive read of the report and the more time I spend with it, the more stunning and devastating a document I think it really is. It, it takes some time to settle in and sort of the significance it takes some time to realize. I think for me the two big takeaways are one The Trump campaign largely knew what the Russians were doing, and they welcomed it, and they wanted it to happen, and they wanted it to succeed. And they didn't just not warn the American people. They lied about it, and and they attempted to promote sort of propaganda talking points. and, and, And I defer to Robert Mueller's prosecutorial judgment that that is um, that the conduct in question did not rise to the level of what could be charged under criminal conspiracy. But it's wrong and it's unpatriotic and it's brazen and it's shocking um, and it's something that this country is, is really going to have to ask itself what it means for somebody who engaged in that kind of conduct who defrauded the American people into becoming president to sit in the Oval Office now. That's a, that's a really big thing to reckon with. Do you this, feel just this question on that? As I read the report – there's clearly not a lot of editorial judgment going on, but he is clearly aligning facts in such a way that it draws your attention to specific kinds of actions. And I, as I'm reading this report, I'm wondering if the people who are writing it don't feel the way you do. I, I think that they were, to the extent that they do feel one way or another about it, it it's hard to imagine that anyone who um, has had a career of a government service um, seeing this conduct and not being shocked and, and appalled and, and stunned by it. Um, that said, you know, this is the very, very restrained, very, very disciplined report. It's actually part of the reason why it takes so long and you have to really spend time with it because they remove all of that and, and it's just the facts and, and the facts themselves are quite overwhelming. Um, the other piece that it's taken me time and it, it's sort of it's I've been mulling it over and, and, and I can't sort of um, I keep turning it over in my mind. And, and that's um, while Robert Mueller says he is not accusing the president of a crime, he is accusing the president of having engaged in conduct in which all the statutory elements of a crime are met in which Robert Mueller says that there are no legal or constitutional defenses. And you can say that's not accusing someone of a crime and you cannot write that final sentence and therefore the president of the United States committed a crime. But it is the inescapable conclusion of this report. And we can talk sort of later about uh, Mueller's judgment in in deciding not to actually take that extra step. Um, But I think in some sense, people are overreading what he, his decision to not, to not accuse the president of the crime, um, because he lays every single piece of it out here. He makes crystal clear where his mind is headed. He says, 
I can't charge the president with a crime and therefore not being able to charge him with it. I can't accuse him of the of a crime. If I could exonerate him, I would. And I'm not doing that. And um, that is tiptoeing right, right up to the line of saying the president of the United States has obstructed justice. Tammy, what's the thing that has stuck with you? Uh, first of all, I agree with everything Susan said, and I was very struck by the extent to which for Donald Trump and his family members and everyone working with him on the campaign, it wasn't just politics as war, you know, and all is fair and love and war, and therefore you accept help from the Russians. It was this sort of excitement and the welcoming and the active encouragement of that help is something that goes beyond even the the sort of Lee Atwater rules of bare knuckle politics. Um, that was striking to me. But I have to say the thing that has stayed with me is the my immediate feeling when I read the executive summary of volume one, which is about Russian interference, just the scope of that Russian interference, how early it started, how multifaceted it was, how clearly designed it was to divide Americans and set us against one another. And then partly because of the um, embrace of this Russian interference by the Trump campaign, but even setting that aside, how, how well it worked. And of course, we can't know the actual impact of this Russian interference and the outcome of the election. It's a counterfactual if we hadn't had this, would the outcome have been different? It was an extremely close election decided by a few tens of thousands of votes in a couple of states. And and so reading that, I just felt like we're never going to know what the actual impact of this was. We accepted the outcome that we had as a legitimate outcome. We accepted that Donald Trump had won the presidency and and accepted his presidency as legitimate, but wow. And so I have to say also as someone who, you know, to, to be transparent, I was not only a supporter of Hillary Clinton, I was a volunteer advisor for foreign policy on her campaign. I was an unabashed uh, partisan in this campaign. But if I, if I can separate myself from that at all, I can still say this was an historic campaign, the first female nominee of a major party, the first female to really have a shot at the presidency in such a tight election with this Russian interference, I feel like that that shot at history never got a fair chance. And that makes me sad for the country and sad for Hillary and sad for me as someone who thinks she would have been a good president. But it makes me sad for history that we didn't get a fair test of that proposition. And any future test is going to be colored by this experience forever. Ben. So I actually, the thing that sticks with me about this report is the numbing effect of the sheer scope and volume of allegations of misconduct. And so I the, yesterday, Susan and I did an event at Brookings where we you know, talked to, to uh, some people about this, including Chuck Rosenberg. And I started it by asking Susan and, and Chuck, you know, if volume two of this 
uh, report on obstruction did not exist, how big a deal would volume one be on its own? And Susan said it would be, you know, a huge deal. And Chuck agreed with her, and I agree with both of them. And yet, volume one of the report on the Russian interference stuff and collaboration and contacts therewith actually isn't getting nearly as much attention uh, because it's been swamped by the magnitude of the misconduct described in volume two. And there are things in volume two itself that are not getting nearly as much attention as they normally would because they're being swamped by other things in volume two. It's a swampy book. And the phrase flood the zone comes to mind, right? That if the the volume of misconduct is immense enough, the irony is that we become kind of inured to it and don't process it with outrage. And the irony so any five pages of this report, you can scream with rage when you read. But by the time you read 105 pages, you can't do that anymore. And it, so, you know, Stalin's line is the death of one man is a, is a tragedy. The death of a million men is a statistic. And this, I don't know if he really said that, but it's, it's uh, you know, uh, at least apocryphal. Um, this re- reading this report really reminds me of that, that, you know, you, you kind of can't process the magnitude of the awfulness of it. And so what you start doing is being kind of clinical about it or uh, making, you know, making jokes about it or finding footnotes that are interesting. And I've done this myself. You find an interesting footnote and tweet it, right? And anything but look in the face at a grotesque pattern of uh, failed patriotism and betrayal of the country during the campaign and transition leading to a just horrific series of interactions between the president personally and the law enforcement leadership of the country. And I find myself, you know, I've been going through volume two over the last couple of days, um, incident by incident. And some of them are obviously impeachable and some of them are pretty obviously criminal. And some of them are both. And the irony is that to what extent they individually outrage me correlates with neither of them especially. And so I'm, I guess my message to all the rational security listeners is if you're going to do something bad, do something really bad. Do 30 bad things. Do them in rapid succession. Over and over again. Over and over and over again. Just let people get used to it. And then they'll find a way, 40% of the people, 45% of the population will find a way to forgive you for all of it. Well, we're joking about it, but there's something to this idea, right, of this is the boiling frog analogy that people have used or the idea that people have become you know, inured to Donald Trump's peculiar behavior towards Russia, to say the least. And I mean, there's something about that that you see this kind of sustained activity. And I even begin to think about the people in the White House who, based on the report, just seem to start ignoring him and understand that there he goes again about the Mueller Mueller investigation uh, and just look the other way. I I actually think this is an instance in which 
journalists might have been too good at their jobs because it's not just the cumulative effect of him having done so much. It's it having trickled out very slowly over mm-hmm. time. And so the fact that this is confirming everything all at once, I, I do think that if if we didn't have if we didn't already know about the Trump Tower meeting, uh, this would be getting a completely different reception. Um, if we didn't already know about him uh, telling Jim Comey to let Mike Flynn go, uh, this would be getting a totally different reception. And so, Shane, I am curious from your perspective, this is obviously a huge vindication of a huge body of reporting, including your own. And so to what extent does do you look at this report and say, you know, Robert Mueller is an investigative journalist with subpoena power get into the story six months or 18 months later? And and to what extent is there is there new stuff in here? Well, I, it's interesting because one of the things I was going to say that stuck with me about this or the impressions is, is how much of this we have seen and how much it validates a lot of our reporting. And it's funny, you mentioned like Robert Mueller being an investigator with subpoena power, an investigative journalist with subpoena power. You can even see in the way that he has built out this narrative, he's using very much the same tradecraft that reporters do. It is, you know, building one thing after another, one interview after another. Obviously, he can compel people in ways that we can't. But we all kind of arrived at the same story. And that feels both, you know, I guess, validating on the one hand that we did our jobs right. But it's also interesting, as you say, because it trickled out in this kind of non-chronological, fragmentary fashion where, you know, things were coming out from what we now know as volume two and things were coming out from what we now know as volume one. It was very difficult for anyone to put that together. And I think this also was a problem. I mean, I'd said more times than I can count during reporting on the story for nearly two years that the public has lost the thread. And we even found ourselves sometimes having to remind ourselves now, which Russian was that again? And wait, which which story does that connect to? It was very, very challenging. And so, I mean, I have a lot of admiration for the way he's been able to coherently present it here. The other thing I was going to say that, that stuck with me was actually something very particular because I had, you know, written about Peter Smith, this Republican operative who launched an effort to find Hillary Clinton's emails from her private server, this kind of conspiracy theory that's existed for a number of years that the emails were never really deleted or even if they were, they could be recovered from the dark web and that they would show, you know, malfeasance and corruption in the Clinton Foundation. Um, that was all borne out uh, from, his, from Mueller's own investigation. But then we find out that Donald Trump, the candidate, was one of the people obsessed with getting a hold of these emails and that he directed Michael Flynn then his national security advisor on the campaign, to go out and find them. And it was Flynn who then contacted Peter Smith and another person named Barbara Ladine, who was a Senate staffer running her own private email hunt. Uh, And we see far more interest on the part of the campaign in that effort. Uh, And then there are places where there actually are quite significant redactions, so it's hard to understand precisely what's going on. But the impression that you start to get is that the campaign – was talking to people who they thought might have these emails, directing people on the campaign to get in touch with them, constantly expressing interest, Trump constantly often expressing frustration when they did not show up. And it really does make me wonder if, frankly, one of the investigations that we don't know about of of the 12 or so that are redacted might have something to do with efforts by people on the campaign to go out and, you know, make contact. Yeah, so I have two quick points about the Peter Smith thing. One is the degree 
to which there is a direct line on this matter between Donald Trump's personal behavior and efforts by the campaign to collude. And by the word collude, I mean conspire with in a fashion that would normally be criminal with Russians who hacked Hillary Clinton's emails. Uh, there is a very direct line, which is the president gives a speech in which he says, Russia, if you're listening, can you recover Hillary Clinton's 30,000 missing emails? He then repeatedly orders Mike Flynn to go find these missing emails. Mike Flynn gets in touch with Peter Smith and Barbara Ledeen. Both of them go on these crusades to find these emails. Barbara Ledeen, in fact, acquires some emails, she believes, from, from Russian hackers. And Peter Smith also contacts people he believes to be Russian hackers uh, in an effort to get emails. Now, Barbara Ledeen's emails turn out to be not authenticated. Uh, because they were almost certainly dealing with shysters. But so, you know, to anyone who says no collusion, this brings me to my second point. The reason there was no collusion in this instance is because the campaign was lived in such a conspiracy theory driven fever swamp that they contacted fake Russian hackers and retrieved fake emails rather than the real Russian hackers who were in fact hacking real emails from Hillary Clinton. And so, you know, as a matter of law, if you make up people to conspire with who are not in fact engaged in that conspiracy because they don't exist, and you conspire with them to commit crimes to retrieve stolen material that in fact does not exist, you're actually innocent of conspiracy because you've made the whole thing up. Right. The well-settled legal principle of being too dumb to collect. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, but I'm not sure it's morally different from, right. uh, from actually successful collusion. And on that point, I just want to say that, Tammy, I know you want to make a point. You know, what my reporting show in Peter Smith was doing this is that the Trump campaign and Michael Flynn personally portrayed this as either something they had no idea what it was – or in Mike Flynn's case was, oh, generally where he was up to something. But I don't know. He would send me emails every now and then. That is just not true. And this report shows that. Yeah, I think pivoting off of both of those sets of comments from Shane and Ben, I, I'm trying to imagine a world in which journalists had not managed to uncover these tidbits of news along the way about the Trump Tower meeting, about Peter Smith's quest for Hillary Clinton's emails about all of the conduct of Trump campaign associates. And if the Mueller investigation had been launched and then sort of gone on in the absence of public knowledge of the extent to which the Trump campaign was obsessed with taking advantage of this Russian interference on their own behalf, we would, number one, have an American public that would have been very ready to have President Trump fire Bob Mueller as he attempted to do. And number two, we would have a report that would come out and the American people would be like, you know, what the hell? This is just bizarre. And the Trump administration would deny it all. I actually think it's hugely important that all that a lot of this got out into the press, even if the drip, drip, drip reduced the impact, the drama of the report, 
I still think it created an environment in which it was harder for President Trump to continue this corrupt relationship with Russia because the public had knowledge of a corrupt relationship that predated the presidency. I actually think that's a really important point. And, and the one other point is um, that in the, the extent to which investigative journalism may have actually protected the nation in in important ways, which was um, there was really, really damaging leverage over really, really important White House officials. And uh, one way to mitigate the threat of that leverage is having it exposed in public. And so uh, I, I think Tammy is right that the, the counterfactual world um, in which this stuff was not exposed in a timely manner um, what are, whether the political consequences might have been different, um, we, we are almost certainly better off for it. Rational Security has a sponsor this week. It's Blinkist. With breaking news coming at you fast, it's hard to tear yourself away from social media. It's really hard to tear yourself away from the Mueller report. You might feel you have to read every news story and every page of the Mueller report, and you might feel you don't have time to read the books you want. The Blinkist app helps solve these problems. Blinkist is the only app that tells you what you really need to know from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses the central ideas in those books down so you can read them or listen to them as 15-minute segments and then go back to reading the Mueller report. Blinkist is for busy people who want to get to the main points of books without having to read the whole thing. With Blinkist's audio feature, those users can also finish highlights for up to four books a day. The Blinkist nonfiction library is growing every day with genres ranging from biography to science to philosophy and many more besides. And it's got a lot of titles that listeners of Rational Security will find interesting. For example, while I've read Chernow's Hamilton, given the constitutional questions at issue in the wake of the Mueller report, I'm looking forward to digesting the key points of the biography on Blinkist. This week, I also read Blinkist's highlights of The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People by Stephen Covey. The Mueller report was over 400 pages, so I didn't have much time to read anything else this week. If you're like me, and you also have a growing to-read list, no matter how busy things get, Blinkist gives you the opportunity to read or listen to the main points of all of the books on those lists. So, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for Rational Security listeners. Go to Blinkist.com RS to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, dot com slash RS to start your free seven-day trial. Again, Blinkist.com slash RS. Okay, let's talk now about something that is not in the report. What we see is the Mueller report, of course, began as a counterintelligence investigation by the FBI during the presidential election when there were concerns that Russians were trying to penetrate a presidential campaign and possibly interfere in our democratic processes. That counterintelligence probe, it has been reported, by the way, is still going. And of course, there is undoubtedly information that Robert Mueller came upon. I think we know this actually from public reporting, in fact, uh, that he referred back to the Bureau for counterintelligence purposes that ultimately didn't make it into this final report. I'll actually flag something that was uh, kind of on this subject today too, uh, this week too. Andrew Weiss over at Carnegie uh, noted in a long Twitter thread that the government in its uh, sentencing memo for Maria Butina, 
this, uh, we'll remember, the, the Russian woman who was a student in the United States and seemed to be trying to make inroads with gun rights groups, uh, filed an addendum to that sentencing memo by Robert Anderson, who was the former head of counterintelligence for the FBI, who went on at great length and a quite, I think, scathing analysis of why it is important to understand that these contacts and these kinds of back channels that emerged with the Trump campaign and Russia could be damaging to national security. And he quotes in a couple of places here to say, um, Russian intelligence services, based on all these contacts they made, will be able to use this information for years to come in their efforts to spot and assess Americans who may be susceptible to recruitment as foreign intelligence assets. And he goes on to say that back channels can, quote, cause commensurate harm to the United States including harm to the integrity of the U.S. political processes and internal government dealings, as well as to U.S. foreign policy interests and national security. So, Susan, while the president has liked to say there's no collusion, and while Robert Mueller said he could not establish a criminal conspiracy, there is something very significant, it seems to me, in these counterintelligence findings. It is not this, at least as the former head of the FBI's counterintelligence division is saying, these are not harmless contacts. These are not inconsequential contacts. Um, we've already talked about the fact that nobody on the campaign ever raised their hand or called the FBI and said, hey, there's some Russians who are trying to make uh, inroads with us. But talk a little bit about that, about what you think this counterintelligence piece of it you know, could look like and the, and the kinds of lessons that we should be taking from what we see here in the report, if we viewed them through a counterintelligence lens. Yeah, so this this report is just about the clearest articulation of what the counterintelligence threat looks like and what the concern is, as we kind of have in the public domain. So the examples where individuals associated with the Kremlin pass talking points to people who are friends with Jared Kushner, those talking points on sort of the administration position towards Ukraine or Crimea. Kushner then takes those and passes those on to the Secretary of State, right? The idea that there are foreign adversaries that are influencing U.S. policy in a way that is not transparent to, uh, to U.S. decision makers, that is the nature of the CI concern. So I think it's laid out pretty openly what exactly this concern looks like and, and why we should be worried and continue to be worried um, that, among other things, Jared Kushner uh, is still in the White House. I do think there's a big question mark about whether or not a big CI report exists how Mueller approached the CI question and what that might look like moving forward. So Robert Mueller essentially, whenever he becomes the special counsel, he becomes like an assistant U.S. attorney, right? He Instead of being the assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, the Southern District of New York, he's the district attorney for – or he's the, he's the United States attorney for Russia collusion issues, right? An AUSA doesn't have the ordinary uh, national security authorities that we would expect to be seeing in a counterintelligence investigation. They aren't relying on FISA warrants. They aren't becoming the head of the FBI's sort of counterintelligence division for those purposes. They're continuing to sort of investigate the criminal aspects. And then they're working with elements of the Bureau that are continuing to do those things, issuing national security letters, all that kinds of – all that sort of stuff. And so – 
we can sort of imagine a world in which Mueller comes in. He's obviously closely related to this inquiry that's going on within the Bureau. He obviously has jurisdiction with respect to sort of the criminal elements of it. But it's not really true that he comes in and becomes the head of the the CI investigation. So that leaves an open question, um, which is, did Mueller conclude his tenure, um, having taken some of those CI pieces and, and taken what sort of the, the flow in and out to sort of the other elements of the bureau, put them all together in this big giant classified annex, uh, maybe tied them to particular criminal charges, uh, and left it to be briefed in a classified setting to the Gang of Eight for a later day? Or instead, did Mueller pretty much approach his job as as a prosecutor? And so, yeah, there's classified information here and there's a counterintelligence piece here. But it's it's not because there's some big, giant other secret CI report. It's because this is basically what Mueller did. And the other fringe stuff that, that we'll get briefed later, uh, it's not included in this, not just because it's classified, but because Mueller didn't prioritize it as part of his job. So I think actually we do know the answer to that, and it is buried in the report in a procedural section, the answer to this. And a lot of people are not merely not reading this, they are misreading it. And I want to single out our old friend Garrett Graff, who uh, wrote recently uh, on in Wired magazine, uh, this was as much a counterintelligence investigation as a criminal investigation. And uh, with all due respect to Garrett, that is completely wrong. And so, look, there is a longstanding idea and it has its roots in the fact that this investigation was born out of a criminal – out of a counterintelligence investigation, that there is a substantial – counterintelligence dimension to this investigation. And Mueller and a lot of really serious people, I mean, Marty Lederman uh, wrote really extensively about how the core of the Mueller investigation is a counterintelligence investigation and the you know classified counterintelligence briefing to the Hill would be the sort of – would be the sort of heart and soul of the Mueller investigation. I would love that to be true, but I think the report falsifies it. So here is what Bob Mueller says about on page 13 of the report about how he imagined his role and how the office was constituted. From its inception, the office recognized that its investigation could identify foreign intelligence and counterintelligence relevant to the FBI's broader national security mission. FBI personnel who assisted the office established procedures to identify and convey such information to the FBI. For more than the past year, the FBI also embedded personnel at the office who did not work on the special counsel's investigation, but whose purpose was to review the results of the investigation and to send in writing summaries of foreign intelligence and counterintelligence information to FBI HQ and FBI field offices. All right, so his description, in other words, is that the FBI had embedded people sending the counterintelligence information outside the special counsel's office to the FBI for processing as counterintelligence. Now, how did Mueller imagine what the office was? Quote, 
The special counsel structured the investigation in view of his power and authority to exercise all investigative and prosecutorial functions of any United States attorney. Like a U.S. attorney's office, the special counsel's office considered a range of classified and unclassified information available to the FBI, and the office structured that work around evidence for possible use in prosecutions of federal crimes. In other words, the office was a prosecutorial office only, not a counterintelligence investigation. It had certain embedded counterintelligence agents who routed information to FBI counterintelligence uh, and how the FBI handled that information, we don't know. There is no indication in the report that there is this classified an annex that people like Marty Lederman have been, have been hypothesizing. I think it was a viable hypothesis. I just don't think it's right. And at this point, I think we should really stop talking about the Mueller investigation as a bifurcated criminal slash counterintelligence investigation. And look, I've talked about it that way myself. I don't think after the report itself, the evidence uh, suggests that that's correct. Well, let me. Let me I want to ask. I want to talk about then what we should be learning from this. I mean, from a, taking the counterintelligence lessons and what we can apply to 2020. And Tammy, I want to ask you about this. I mean, already this week we've seen Jared Kushner in an interview with Time Magazine being dismissive of the whole Russian interference. He said, you know, they bought a couple of Facebook ads. Uh, New York Times had reporting today that uh, Mick Mulvaney told Kirsten Nielsen when she was Homeland Security Secretary not to bring up 2020 election interference with the president, even though the Homeland Security Department has as one of its missions trying to prevent future election interference. And he said he don't bring it up with him because it'll just make him mad and make him anxious about his uh, whether he won the election it with Russia. Bad advice. Help. They should just rename election interference, family separation, right. and then the president would, would get like all it. enthusiastic about it. And then we had Rudy Giuliani, the president's you know, lawyer, at least on television over the weekend, saying that basically it's okay to take stolen information from Russians, giving every indication, I think, when you couple it with other things people in the administration have said, that there's no real concerted whole-of-government effort by the Trump administration to prevent a repeat in 2020 of what happened in 2016. Uh, and furthermore, they seem to be perhaps not all that concerned about it, don't think it's that big of a deal. And, you know, hey, all is fair in love and war in politics. If the Russians hand you stuff, you can use it. So, I mean, are we – Tammy, what, what are the, the lessons that even the public should be trying to take from this? Because it seems like the administration is not taking any or maybe is taking all the wrong ones. Yeah, so I think there are two takeaways from this. Number one is if you want to see the effect – of living with an abusive narcissistic personality. Look at the way the people around Donald Trump working for him in this administration and in his family are minimizing a massive national security problem because they're afraid of upsetting Donald Trump. They're afraid of making him unhappy, of making him feel insecure about the legitimacy of his election victory. And as a result, they are willing to egregiously downplay a violation of the integrity of our political system, which is, by the way, an ongoing problem. It is, you know, as as one of the the Mueller filings said recently, is going on to this day, right? So that's the first thing. 
But the second thing that I, the question I find myself asking right now is given that, given that the president of the United States clearly has no intention of carrying out his fundamental duty to protect the national security of the United States and the integrity of our democratic political system from this degree of interference. The question I'm asking is how much of what we need to do to defend ourselves relies on him? How much can be done legislatively? How much can be done at the agency or the interagency level without the president making new decisions or exercising his own authorities? And how much of it actually relies on presidential exercises of authority? Because I think we have to work on the assumption that this president is not going to do crap about this in the run up to 2020. And so that leaves it to the FBI, the rest of the intelligence community working with the FBI. It leaves it to states and to the extent that federal agencies can help states. And it leaves it to Congress. And one thing I really hope is that if GOP members of the House and Senate can't bring themselves to condemn the president's behavior as described in the Mueller report, at least they should be able to bring themselves to cooperate with Democrats in the House and Senate to pass necessary legislation to protect our political system from future um, interference. Okay, so let's do our last segment now and talk about what happens next. Um, Susan, you and Quinta Dressick had a pretty compelling piece in Lawfare essentially making the argument, if I read it correctly and correct me if I'm wrong, that Congress really has no choice but to pursue an impeachment proceeding. doesn't mean impeach necessarily, but to begin the formal process of an impeachment. Why do you think that? And let's talk about the prospects for that happening. I think that's that's right. Um, and, and I do think there's an important distinction between beginning an impeachment inquiry, which is the fact-finding process, versus actually saying we're going to impeach someone. I think that uh, there's a lot of focus right now on the political calculus of whether or not um, essentially a, a quote-unquote failed impeachment, an impeachment that he, for which he is not convicted and removed from office, if that's politically a good thing or politically a bad thing for Democrats. Um, and I think that's a really dangerous way to be thinking about it because there are serious institutional equities at stake here. And that's that the Mueller report is an astounding astounding document. It just is. And for any listeners that haven't taken the time to really sit down and read it, do so. Just take the time to, to read through what the president of the United States did, what he said about it, the degree to which he lied about it, and the basic criminal conduct uh, that we've, we've seen emanating from, uh, from the Oval Office. If in the face of that kind of report, the response from Congress is to shrug. That means that impeachment isn't a true constitutional power of the branch. It means that impeachment at the end of the day is a rough measure of how many votes the president's party has in the Senate, right? And the, perver the, the perverse loop that's happening is we have an OLC memo that says the sitting president cannot be indicted. I happen to think that memo is probably wrong, um, but it's certainly binding, and, and Mueller considered it binding on him. And he says, in light of this memo that says that I can't, this guidance, I can't indict the president. I'm not going to indict the president, and I'm not even going to accuse the president of crimes because it would be unfair to accuse him of crimes 
in a situation in which he cannot then be tried and clear his name. Uh, and so I, I, I'm going to stop short. Uh, I'm just going to lay out the factual record. But the OLC memo is predicated on this idea that it's true a sitting president can't be indicted, but don't worry. There's this other mechanism. There's this release valve there, and that's in the form of impeachment. And so what's happening is the OLC memo is being read by Robert Mueller to essentially say, I can only exonerate the president. I cannot even accuse him. I can't charge him, and if I can't charge him, then I can't accuse him. And if I could exonerate him, I would, but I'm not doing that. So he's saying the OLC memo means that this kind of investigation can only conclude with this sort of nebulous we don't know or an actual exoneration. And then what I'm seeing developing in terms of a talking point in the House is the lack of a clear finding that the president of the United States has committed a crime being used as a reason to not pursue the impeachment inquiry, right? As if, well, it's sort of, it's this, it, we're left in this murky place, right? And so it's, it's this bizarre, nonsensical, sort of baffling position to end up in, in which case the impeachment remedy is the basis for the OLC, you can't indict a president or, or one of the bases. And that guidance is in some ways inhibiting impeachment. And, and that just does not strike me as a, a sustainable position uh, if we're going to take the separation of powers seriously. Yeah, one way I've been thinking about it, and Ben, maybe, you know, tell me what you think of this, is Robert Mueller even says, you know, in the report, you know, there's a longstanding principle, obviously, in this country that no one is above the law. The dilemma that Quinta and Susan sketched out in this piece it strikes me that the president, we're not saying he's above the law, but he is beyond the reach of the law in this case. If, if Congress is not going to avail itself of the only mechanism available to hold him to account, and by the way, the mechanism that is envisioned as the safety valve by the OLC memo, um, I'm curious what you think about that. And, and, and you've been talking recently the past couple of days too about the need for even if this doesn't go to an actual impeachment, using the impeachment process as a mechanism to force members of the House and particularly the Republicans to come out and give a vote and explain their vote. So actually, I think particularly the Democrats. I assume that the same Republicans who have been silent will quietly vote against any impeachment. And, you know, that's their prerogative and that's really between them and their voters, I suppose, and between them and their consciences. I think the much more interesting people to get on the record and require to, you know, demand that they make a speech explaining why they are voting against impeachment are people who would concede that this conduct is unacceptable, but say, but I don't think impeachment is wise under these circumstances. Now, I actually have some sympathy with that view. It may be risky to do this. But I do think that everybody who believes that, who's a member of Congress, should have to stand up in the well of the House and say, I believe the president committed impeachable offenses. I believe he committed crimes. But I am going to vote against impeachment because I'd rather fight this out in an electoral system or I think it may be bad for the Democratic Party, right? All the list of reasons that you could give 
for that. And I think actually requiring people to have those sentiments recorded and evaluated would be very democratically healthy, honestly. I also think, you know, we always, people always complain that, you know, Congress's power is being, you know, atrophied. Congress is becoming sort of less uh, empowered branch than it was imagined to be, than it used to be. And we wonder how that happened. And usually think about it in terms of the executive branch seizing power from Congress. And of course, the history of it is really more of powers atrophying through disuse. And you are watching one of those things happen right now that, you know, over time, if the lesson is that Congress feels no institutional duty to evaluate an impeachment, but simply, as Susan says, counts votes, eventually that power, it is always less politically convenient to impeach somebody. And so eventually that power will kind of fade away. Tammy, do you think that Democrats learned the wrong lesson from the Clinton impeachment? Uh, you know, clearly that is what is foremost in Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer's mind, this idea that it is going to be disastrous for Democrats, you know, give uh, President Trump a rallying cry, possibly aid him in the 2020 uh, campaign. Are they reading this the wrong way? I don't think they're necessarily reading the lesson of the Clinton impeachment the wrong way. It, I think it's quite likely that impeaching the president would galvanize his base, would enable him to raise a ton of money. And as we've seen um, and as we saw in the midterms, you know, in a highly polarized electoral context, base mobilization matters hugely to outcomes. And so it does present a real danger as far as 2020, not only for the prospect of actually evicting the president from the White House through an electoral mechanism, which I think I think all of us would agree in principle is the best way to do it, but also for members of the House and members of the Senate and for Democratic hopes of possibly recapturing the Senate and hanging on to the House. So. You know, there is a lot at stake for them in that. But I also don't like the way this discussion of impeachment is treated like a light switch. Either they impeach or they don't impeach. There's a lot of work that the, that the House can and should do before any decision is made about impeachment. And it strikes me that all of these questions about the squishy Republican senators uh, that Ben was describing, who should be forced to justify why their horror or dismay at presidential behavior um, doesn't move them to want to impeach. All of that stuff will only get tested and really uh, pushed through a process of investigation. And I, I think that given the egregiousness of the conduct that was laid out here, it's not appropriate to simply draw a parallel to the Clinton impeachment. It is appropriate to, and I actually think that ultimately the pressure from the Democratic base will be almost irresistible. It is appropriate for the House to continue the investigations it's begun to possibly begin additional impeachment-related investigations in the appropriate committee uh, and hold some hearings. And that will also allow the public to, to see more clearly, I think that thread, that narrative thread that we were talking about at the beginning that's been lost, and to begin to shift its own attitudes 
and potentially thereby the attitudes of its elected representatives toward impeachment. So the question of whether or not to impeach to me is not a right now question. It's a later question. The question right now is whether to investigate toward the possibility of impeaching. And to me, the answer to that question is pretty obviously yes. I want to close this segment out by talking just briefly about Bill Barr and how you all read his rollout of the report, beginning with the four-page letter, which he then insisted wasn't a summary. I think we can fairly uncontroversially say, and debate me if you think otherwise, that Bill Barr did not describe the report publicly as it exists on paper. There were some pretty significant distortions. But I'm also curious what you think if he, in effect, softened the ground by doing it the way he did or, to use another metaphor, kind of took the wind out of the sails of Democrats and the momentum that might have been building towards impeachment and has given the Republicans essentially kind of a shield. You know, you can play the sound bites of him saying no collusion. You can point to the place where he says, I determined he did not obstruct justice. Did he kind of preempt this mechanism in some way or throw some serious obstacles in its way? I actually think his framing exercise failed almost completely. And the evidence for that is that Jared Kushner has to get up on a stage in New York and downplay the seriousness of the actual facts of Russian interference and his campaign's, you know, embrace of that. I I think that if Barr's framing had sufficed, then they would simply be saying, see, we're done. It's over. We won. No collusion. Let's move on. And that was their messaging when Barr's letter first came out. But clearly that messaging that, you know, they won and the report exonerated them, the messaging of Barr's letter was unsustainable. And so instead they have to try and publicly downplay all of the egregious conduct laid out in the report. So I think that Barr did his own credibility tremendous damage. He may even have put himself in danger of censure from Congress. But I don't think he actually effectively took the air out of the impeachment balloon or even ultimately drove much of the media coverage of the report, which, you know, there were two weeks of, of coverage that looked like it was going the president's way. But now it looks like it's gone a completely different direction. But that's, you know, maybe that's my inside the beltway perspective. And it looks very different elsewhere. I think I mostly disagree with that because... I think that Bill Barr's PR exercise, at least from the period of time from the first summary letter to the press conference, really did shape the narrative. And so now there's a lot of work to be done. And it's the hard work of unearthing 400 nuanced pages. I don't think it's every word out of Bill Barr's mouth may have been technically accurate. And yet Bill Barr lied. He did not tell the truth. He misrepresented the principal conclusions. By the way, those executive summaries could have been released that first day. And there would have been a dramatically different story, the complete executive summaries, as opposed to his sort of cherry-picked quotes. And so I, I do think that Ultimately, over time, sort of the, the true story will take hold. Um, but I think Bill Barr was quite effective in what he did. I think he has decimated his personal credibility 
I think he has delivered an unbelievable blow to the institutional credibility at the, de- at the Department of Justice at a moment in which it needs it the most, in which sort of its word is completely on the line. And there are these shocking, shameful, overwhelming performance that was overwhelmingly at odds with the core values of the Department of Justice that we witnessed, especially the morning that the Mueller report came out. I think that's a performance that is going to define Bill Barr's career. And and my gut instinct is that when he looks back on that, he will regret having done it. So I actually mostly disagree with both Susan and Tammy. I think Barr's performance was almost completely ineffective. I can't detect that it had any substantial, these whole two, two and a half weeks of spinning the report in the absence of the report seems to have had no effect on the president's poll numbers. And I think whatever positive PR effect it had actually had the effect of creating a a set of expectations that then the report then defied and thereby magnified the sort of outrage reaction to the report itself. And so I think as a PR strategy, what Barr did was uh, just terrible judgment. Uh, That said, I do agree and completely agree that his performance uh, was unbefitting the dignity uh, of the Justice Department. It undermined the institutional position of the Justice Department. I think he will never be understood as a credible figure again by very large numbers of people, including me. And uh, this was somebody with a substantial reputation, and uh, he chose to, uh, pardon me, piss it away on flacking for Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, the line, uh, everything touch, Trump touches dies, is true of Bill Barr. This is somebody who actually uh, had a real reputation for, uh, you know, it's a complicated one, but it was a real one. And uh, that is gone now. Okay, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I will go first. My object this week is the Mueller Report. This is a special all-log-rolling object lessons edition. (laughs) It's the Mueller Report, but not like you think. Uh, This is the Mueller Report presented with related materials by the Washington Post. Um, It is the report itself, uh, and actually it's reproduced and paginated according to the report itself, which is very handy and very nice to have right here in your hands. Uh, but there's also an introduction to it uh, by two of my colleagues, Rosalind Helderman and Matt Zapatowski um, from The Post. Ros covers political investigations and Matt covers the Justice Department and are part of the Russia team that we've had going for a couple of years. Uh, and it's a really strong introduction. It kind of takes you through all of the things that you need to know to situate yourself as you're reading the report. There's our cast of characters. Ours is not redacted, by the way, like the Mueller report says. Uh, and in the and the appendix, it has many of the key indictments uh, that that underlie um, uh, that were the product of the special counsel's investigation. So very handy. You can carry it around. It's easier than printing it out in the binder. I, I have this huge dog-eared right? binder, and your copy is much nicer. It's so neat. Very cool and very legal. Very Shane. legal. Very cool. 
Um, Susan, you want to go next? Um, I have an object lesson that is really for you, Shane. Oh. Um, to the extent that you just needed a little something um, uh, to take your mind off of all of this. And that is um, a new CNN report. U.S. Navy introducing guidelines for pilots to report UFO sightings. <gasps> And so while the Navy has said that they do not believe, quote, the Navy does not think that aliens have been flying in U.S. airspace, according to one Navy official, there have been, quote, a number of reports of unauthorized and or unidentified aircraft entering various military controlled ranges. Damn the lawfare drone smackdown. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so now they have a, a formal mechanism for which pilots can report the things that they're seeing that are unidentified flying objects, but not aliens, guys. It's probably not aliens. I'm just kind of surprised there wasn't already. (laughs) But thank God the Navy has taken a step in the right direction. Ben? My object lesson is my diary. (laughs) By Benjamin Wittes. My dear diary. Dear Um, diary. So Friday morning, after we did our initial Mueller report coverage, I thought, you know, I need to read the whole thing and I need to give Lawfare readers kind of a window into my thinking about the entire thing. And I looked at the document and I said, I have no idea how to do this, you know, and you can't do – there's no easy thematic way to do it. There's a thousand stories that are kind of discrete episodes You can't do it by areas of law. And so I just said, all right, I'm just going to start at the beginning and kind of keep a diary as I go and add little pieces to it. And I'll tweet each new diary entry as an update. And so I have been going through the Mueller report, forcing myself every 10 or 15 pages or so, or sometimes 50 pages, to write a little diary entry about that little section. And it is immensely disciplining uh, in terms of sort of forcing yourself to think about, okay, what's going on here and in this section and what do I think about it, right? Forcing you to put your thoughts together. And I think it is also uh, creating this kind of annotated compendium to the document, which, uh, you know, may be useful to readers. A lot of people seem to be at least reading sections of the diary. Uh, And so if you haven't uh, checked out my diary uh, on Lawfare, it's called Notes on the Mueller Report, A Reading Diary. So the big question is, will it be longer than the actual Mueller report? Uh, so far, no. <laughs> Do you write about like who you have a crush on? Yeah, I, and what you had for breakfast. There's, there's the total part where I where I talk about which of the characters in the Russia side I really like wish would <laughs> ask me out, and I have little parts where I write my last, you know, my first name with their last name and heart. Benjamin and stuff. Mueller. Yeah, heart. Oh, well, that brings us to the end of the podcast, you guys. Thanks for sticking with us. It was a long episode today, I know, but uh, it feels like this is – we've been building towards it. So there we are. Um, Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page uh, at lawfareblog.com. You can buy your merch at the The Rational Security Bodega.com. The The Lawfare Lawfare Store. Store. Dot. 
<laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can follow us on Facebook as well. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. It helps other people find the show. Our audio engineer this week was Matthew Kahn. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Robert Mueller and his handbell choir, the 448 pages. Awesome. <laughs> With little bells. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. 448 bells. <laughs> Sophia Yan would not do backup for the 448 pages. Well, she might, if you asked her nicely. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 